My name is Mike. My world is fire and blood. My world is reduced to a single instinct. Podcast. As the world fell, it was hard to know who was more crazy. Me or my co-host, James Kozanitis. Hello, everybody. This is, uh, this is the new episode of Talking During the Movie. I'm the one who named this episode, so I may be crazier, and we are, this is Mike and James, uh, Urban Harvest, and uh, 10 I points still, if you know what movie that's from. I didn't. I'm still actually kind of angry about this. I know, Mike, this is one of those times where Mike wanted to quit before we started, and I just can't handle that. I can't handle you quitting on me all the time, man. He somehow talks me back every week. But I, I just beg him to come back, and it's, it's just actually a horrible abusive relationship that you're listening to right now. But we create great great work out of it it's like the beatles just just like the beatles man we're exactly we're, like the beatles we're the beatles of podcasting mm, it's, it's fantastic especially because we're so humble <laughs> oh yeah so on today's show we are going to review mad max as you um it's a little indie film i don't uh, really know if you've heard of it yeah um, i mean you should probably you could probably check it out at your local art house um you know if you have the pickford it, it'll definitely be there 24 7 uh, if not, then oh well, man. I mean, I... yeah, you know, w- w- the plan to review Mad Max really thwarted my initial desire to uh, devote this show to Pitch Perfect Two. We're back, um, pitches. <laughs> yeah, they found out that pitch rhymes with bitch. The, the incredible creative uh, talent there. James didn't see the movie. I didn't see the movie. No, because I was too busy funneling all my money into seeing Mad Max. <laughs> I saw it twice. I saw it the 7 p.m. showing the night before it came out, um, and then I saw it the 10:15 showing the ne- very next day with a, a different group of people. And honestly, I'm upset that I didn't see it again for a third time. A third time before we reviewed it. Yes. You need to. You know. You need. You need to come at these films from all angles. From Jesus Christ. You know. You need to have be as well read about it. As I. I feel like I need to give a film like this its uh, fair shake. You didn't. Wow, and you didn't even see Ex Machina once. <laughs> really? I will point out that this film is a much higher rated than Ex Machina right now. Uh, James, you know what? If everyone just went to Rotten Tomatoes for their film criticism, we wouldn't be doing this. So, That's true. That's true. Yeah. Now you're here with us, uh, so don't, never go to this site called Metacritic. No. Never. No. We're the Metacritics. We... we... <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, James didn't see pitch perfect 2 this weekend but uh everyone everyone else did did. yeah uh this was a shocker for me uh we're just gonna jump right into our news here that (laughs) pitch perfect 2 beat out mad max in the box office yeah it did i think by a lot too um by a significant amount um made almost about 70 million it's not like it crushed it but it it, no definitely not mad max fury row is uh just behind it at about 45 million Mm -hmm. so so I mean I wasn't kidding before I really actually a month ago okay before I knew anything about Fury Road except the trailer I I really didn't want to do it I I was actually trying to convince James (laughs) to do Pitch Perfect 2 I I didn't I I just really didn't expect much from from Fury Road I didn't know who who the director was or whatever Um, I obviously regret it now Um, but I actually have very strong feelings about all the press on uh, Pitch Perfect 2 taking the weekend box office. Okay, I want to hear that. It, it's not surprising in the slightest. And in fact, Mad Max Fury Road is, I think, 
doing well than most people should reasonably have anticipated. Mad Max Fury Road is an R-rated film based on a 30-year-old franchise. It's, it's more than 30 years old. It's actually been 30 years since the last release. So you have an R-rated film that's alienating a lot of, honestly, a lot of the people who go to films on the weekends and their parents. Um, and you still have it coming up behind this follow-up to a successful, at least successful on home video, musical film that's really popular with tweens and, and, well, and teens, um, Pitch Perfect 2. That's really impressive for it to be this high up, for, for Mad Max to have gotten the box office return that it did. And I think people are trying to make a story out of that, uh, how Mad Max is being robbed, or about how it's uh, how people are seeing the wrong movie. I mean, you know, they are, if, you're, if you can go see Fury Road or Pitch Perfect 2, when you go see Pitch Perfect 2, you made the wrong decision. But, I mean, yes. I think uh, the overall trend, though, uh, Fury Road's doing fantastic. And I, I kind of think it's a little sensational to just to decry it uh, an injustice that it's that it's lower than pitch perfect too no one could have reasonably expected that no that, that's very true as you said because it's an r-rated film it, they're attracted to much different audiences and one the pitch perfect two audience is much more vigorous when it comes to seeing these sort of sorts of films yeah uh, it was weird so i lived in i lived in this alternate universe where everyone around me uh, who i trusted wanted to see pitch perfect two and I had a group of friends before Mike even told me he wanted to see Pitch Perfect 2 who were all like, dude, the weekend of the 15th, we're all going to see Pitch Perfect 2, you should come. And I was like, no, I'm going to see Mad Max. And then it was like the next day or the day after, I was like, yeah, so Mike, we're going to review Mad Max. He's like, dude, actually, if you, we should see Pitch Perfect 2. I was like, what is this world I'm now living in? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, honestly, though, it, that's kind of – this last weekend, I don't know about you, but I – I mean, I, well, I saw both films, actually. I saw both Mad Max. That's true. You are more well-read than I am. And uh, uh, Absolutely, because I saw Pitch Perfect 2. Um, so I, I saw both films. Um, and, uh, I mean, I only went back to one of them twice. I'll let you guess which one that is. Um, but, uh, honestly, my world, everyone that I knew, everyone I saw online, was talking about Fury Road. That, that, that was the talking point film. Like, I'm sure plenty of people saw Pitch Perfect 2 and had a good time, and it was, like, innocuous fun, but Fury Road's the one that people wanted to talk about, and that were and that was really going around the internet. So, I, I don't feel like it's been slighted at all, and I'm not, and I'm not buying any any narrative, at least at this point, that's kind of calling it, uh, that's that's saying that it's being forgotten or left behind un unfairly. I'm, I'm just not buying it right now. No, I mean, we'll get to this more in the review, but I think Mad Max is a film that's going to stick around and Pitch Perfect 2 is going to fade away. Of course it is, but, I mean, it was it was good. And also, I mean, there could be a much worse film it's losing out to. It was, it's a good film. It's Yeah, it's, easily. It's fun. It's innocuous entertainment. It's funny. Um, but I also just... No one can be surprised at this if you really think about it. At least not in my opinion. I, I, I think it's... Mad Max is doing better than expected, and I'm really happy about that. So uh, we're just we're gonna move on from this one. Another film that made a splash at the box office, the overseas box office in China, more specifically, was uh, Avengers: Age of Ultron, which last weekend debuted and took a whopping ninety percent of the overall box office. That's the nuts. overall box office in China, a country with two, three billion people at this point. Some ridiculous number of people. Nine out of ten people who went to the movies saw 
Avengers. Exactly. I is there? Did any other movies come out in, in China? I don't know. I'm actually really. I, the more I read about stuff like this, the more I realize I am in the dark about uh, international box office and international marketing because just weird. I mean, obviously, it's not a surprise that Avengers do, is doing well, but. Like, man, certain things can really sway the foreign market. Uh, yeah. I, like, I mean, like, Transformers is apparently... Transformers 4 was apparently the highest-grossing film of last year, and I, I still don't know a single person who saw it. And from what I gather, it was all in the foreign markets. So I, I honestly don't know what dictates a success uh, overseas. It's It seems really... Really, really random. Ar- really random. Um, like I said, Avengers isn't a big surprise. It's, you know, it's a big movie, but... Also, it's kind of like faded away stateside, hasn't it? Like people, I talked think so. About it. Yeah, people talked about it for like a week or two, and it's gone now. I don't really hear it mentioned anymore. I think we're just being bombarded with so many big releases that big summer releases that it's kind of easy to to just slip into the slip into the crowd and go unnoticed after a while. And a film I heard that was huge overseas that you probably have forgotten is a film. Uh, it was the the Need for Speed film that came out, I think, like last year or the year before. Wait, like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That Need for Speed movie that it's only it's only claim to I guess fame, but not really because everyone still forgot about it. Was that it did it shot all its car chase scenes practically? So great, good for oh, you. Yeah. Uh, that's cool, uh, but it, it wasn't enough to catch your movie in the United States. But apparently, it's fucking big uh, across. I think it's more big in Japan than it is in China, um, but. I, that's something that it, it's the same theme here. I don't know what people watch over there, or what their it. what their market is. So stories like this where they pop up, they just seem ridiculous to me. I didn't. Yeah, you're right. I didn't know that. They, they made it out of the video game Need for Speed. Yeah, it was based off the video game Need for Speed. Oh my god. Okay. And yeah, the only thing the director was like, "Hey, we didn't use any CG." It's like, cool. Yeah. Did you make we're a good gonna movie? Get, we're going to get into some more of that later because uh, I think that's going to be relevant for this week's discussion. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one person who is not at all uh, happy that Ultron is having so much success was Simon Pegg. And um, I talked with Mike a little bit about this in the pre-show, so I'll let him take it away. Yeah, Simon Pegg just made comments recently. Uh, they're going around today. Uh, that he he thinks that adult obsession with science fiction is causing society to become infantilized, um, which I find incredibly ironic coming from someone who starred in a very well-known trilogy, all all three th- films of which focused on grown-up man children and, <laughs> and an obsession with video game and geek culture. And I love those movies, and you know the the Coronetto trilogy by Edgar Wright. I, I love those movies, and also. Has, uh, someone who has a main role in, in Star, the Star Trek. Trek reboots of Duh. Sorry, that should probably be the first one I mentioned, but sure. yeah. So I it, think it's incredibly hypo- hypocritical. Uh, it's super hypocritical. I, I mean, if he's going to be making this comment, he's got to at least accept his part in this culture. And also, I mean, I'm sorry. Is this something that's new to him that that these particular genres um, attract adult audiences? to sort of have childlike fun and childlike fantasies. Like, how does he interpret Westerns in the 50s or um, Schwarzenegger action films in the 80s? I mean, these are all sort of childish 
films that have nothing to do with the real world, but that adults yeah they're mainstays latch onto. They're mainstays, and they just take different forms throughout the decades. I don't understand. No, con- continuing to read his comics, he should make a fucking movie with with Inuritu. Listen to this. It's kind of dumbing down in the way because it's taking our focus away from real r- world issues. Film used to be about challenging emotional journeys oh. or moral questions and make you walk away and reevaluate how you felt about whatever. He actually said whatever. And now we're walking out of the cinema really not thinking about anything other than the fact that Hulk just had a fight with a robot. Uh, does he think that every single film in the past was that thought-provoking masterpiece and that like he views it that way because the films that last are the films that are good like the the, the films that are thought-provoking and and challenge the audience in that way are the ones that stand the test of time so it's really a fallacy to say well you know everyone's seeing avengers now and you know no one's no one's seeing these complex thoughtful movies like well everyone's always been kind of, the mainstream's always been cluttered with a lot of junk i mean not exclusively junk but a lot of junk i yeah, don't it, it's really it, and it's kind of it's a fallacy to suggest otherwise honestly yeah no i'm going to sound a little bit like like Kristen stewart in clouds of sils maria but not all the stuff he's talking about is junk like they're really good superhero movies. They're really good sci-fi movies. Yeah, I really I... like the Star Trek movies that he's in. Me too. I like them also. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, at least I don't have to defend the, the Chloe Grace Martez superhero film. But... No, no. See, the films I'm defending are much easier than the yeah. ones she was doing. I, I don't know. It, to me, that's just kind of a short-sighted thing to say, and it's easy pessimism. Like, you, you see that all the time. It's low-hanging fruit. It's... All the time. Yeah, exactly. You, you have to view things in perspective, and... I can't honestly judge an era of film compared to another, especially as it's going on. It just doesn't work that way. I know that I, I'm seeing fantastic films coming out, both in the mainstream and in uh, the art house, many of which are thought-provoking and well-made, and also some of which are just a good old fun time at the movies, and a lot of which are pieces of shit. But welcome to movies? Like, I, There's no golden age in which every single film that came out is just an amazing and and deep masterpiece no no that that never happened yeah movies are supposed to only appeal to intellectuals like you shut the fuck up Simon. i'm just surprised it's coming from him because he's i've never viewed him as a pretentious person no yeah he makes like down-to-earth comedy films like i i i I still love his movies and i i i hope he continues to do good work in the future i'm just really not enthralled with these comments i don't think that they're I, I don't think that they really hold any water, if you really think about it. No, they don't. And as a big fuck you to Simon Pegg, we're going to move right on into reviewing Mad Max, a mainstream yeah. science fiction post-apocalyptic film. So yeah. suck my dick. Yeah, fuck you, Simon Pegg, and your millions of dollars. Your and awesome movies. Awesome movies and your friendship with Edgar Wright. Oh, man. Our uh, lives are depressing. <laughs> but not <laughs> after I saw Mad Max. <laughs> God, yeah, I hate us. Um, oh God, me so, too. Mm. Well, yeah, you take it away, James. All right, Mad Max from the director of the original Mad Max trilogy, and also the uh, Gene Siskel uh, proclaimed best film of 1998, Babe: Pig in the City. Uh, <laughs> comes Mad Max Fury Road, <laughs> of starring Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron, and. Uh, we made. I'm gonna go go on the record. Mike and I made no attempt to hide our feelings about this movie because what the fuck are we gonna say? You know, James. I know I'm really gonna come out of left field with this, but I actually thought it was a 
thought it was a pretty good movie. Yeah, I I thought it was a masterpiece, actually. I don't know if you saw that coming, but... I mean, you did text me before I even saw it, telling me it's the Star Wars... And or or Indiana, Indiana Jones, Jones. now. <laughs> Which, okay. I think, may just be a little bit hyperbolic, but... Okay, let me let me uh, sort of explain it. I'm not I'm not saying like this is this is as good as those films or or better or anything like that. I'm saying in in our generation we don't have we don't have this t- this type of series uh, that it is going to become a series by the way. We, we don't have this type of series that has its own well imagined, perfectly well imagined world that you can dive into and never you know have questions, never get, never get hungry for wanting more. I could I watched this movie completely satisfied and really intrigued with this universe that Mad Max lives in, and that's the kind of thing that Indiana Jones did. That's the kind of thing that Star Wars did. And beyond like rehashing those films in the Star Wars trilogy and Star Trek, uh, we don't have that originality that you can really cling to, and that's why I think it's comparable to those films. Yeah, I definitely uh, agree with the uh, this idea of a wholly realized world that you feel completely immersed in and you don't mind inhabiting. And it's not in a superficial way like Avatar where you're being shown everything and everything is on display for you and is being explained to you. Like that's such a, it's such a showy way to create an environment and God damn it. Mad Max Hero just sticks you right in there and just lets you live it and experience it and breathe in it. And it's so yeah, in terms of being a tactile, real universe that you can inhabit, I, I do agree with you. This is one of those movie worlds for me now that, uh, um, you know, some, like Star Wars, like Indiana Jones, and again, not necessarily comparing the film to those in terms of in terms of quality, although I don't think that's completely absurd. It's not too far um, off. No. no, no, not too far off, definitely not. Um, I, I also love this movie, although I think you may be a bit more enthusiastic than, than I am. Um, okay. Uh, I still think that this is the best action film I've seen since maybe The Dark Knight. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it's funny too. We I know Metacritic scores aren't everything at all, uh, and I know we don't put much yeah. weight to it. But even this has an eighty nine right now. Even Avatar, which everyone knows is completely fucking overblown, has a um, has an eighty three. Mm-hmm. So, and we've mentioned this a few times. I want to pose the first question to you. Are we undergoing Avatar Syndrome? Convince me I'm not. I I thought about that a lot, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. I I do think some people are. um, But I I think that that's a... Like, just in terms of people maybe... People have been getting really intense with the hyperbole for this film, calling it flawless, calling it, like, the best action film they've ever seen although i will say i think you can make an argument that there's that this film has some of the best action ever filmed um, yeah that's true so i guess maybe that's not too far off either I, I i there i do think there has been some hyperbole but um i there's so much more substance here at least in terms of just visceral kinetic filmmaking impressive filmmaking here on display here than there ever was in avatar avatar was like impressive in all the conventional ways that have been it, it they've gotten really boring honestly and it has not aged well i don't think a film like avatar has aged well and will just continue to degenerate uh mm-hmm. i think as the years go by not a certainly not a bad film but one where the flaws become 
really glaring as time goes on. Mad Max, I'm just impressed at how uh, how careful a hand George Miller took with this. It's like, because this is coming up 30 years after the last film in the franchise, Thunderdome. And you never I, see that. You never see that. It's almost like George Miller took every single idea that he had in those 30 years. And I mean, it wasn't even technically 30 years. I think he filmed this... Um, when I, I believe in like the early 2010s, like actually several years ago. Um, and it, it, it's, it's just like he took every single great idea he had and, and executed them with the precision of a master. Like I, this is some of the best filmmaking I've seen in an action film, in a mainstream Hollywood film in a long time. And it has nothing to do with the technology or the effects behind it. It's, it's everything to do with how the camera shoots how the action's choreographed, how it's edited together so flawlessly so that everything makes sense and you know where everyone is in relation to everyone else, even in the most chaotic sequences, and there are a lot of them. Um, so, God damn it, color me impressed, man. This is the filmmaking, just the raw filmmaking here, the stuff that doesn't age is decades ahead of something like Avatar, despite all the computers that went into the latter. Yeah, so my, you know, the biggest thing with Avatar, it, it, it's spectacle. So it's, it's ooh, look at this, and un, underneath, there's not much there. So you could argue, and I would, I would totally listen to this argument, that the, that the CG, the very impressive visuals that were on display with Avatar are just as much uh, this, this convention uh, as the, the raw filmmaking that you're talking about, but it's what's underneath that's important. Yeah. Uh, and what's underneath an avatar is nothing whatsoever. Whereas I've I've had serious thoughts like, okay, what is what is there to Mad Max besides it being a well-made film? And there is a lot more, despite having a very simple plot. We haven't even really talked about this, but yeah, uh, Mad Mad Max, you're basically thrown into this universe. You see Mad, you see Max. He's uh, kidnapped into this society basically that he kind of doesn't want to be a part of clearly, and then. <clears throat> Someone attempts a daring escape, not him, Charlize Theron, who plays Furiosa, Imperator Furiosa. Imperator Furiosa, such a great name. And she start and she starts to make like a daring escape from the society. It turns out that she has taken away the the sex slave wives from from the uh, leader of this society. And he obviously wants them back, so he commences a chase. And then the rest of the film is a series of chases. Mm-hmm. So. Which is honest. Which is the one negative, re- not negative. The one mixed review on Metacritic right now is someone saying the whole movie was just a chase scene, and he and he, what he did was ignore exactly what I'm talking about. Everything that's underneath that, right? Without really giving any thoughts to character, uh, or even just the depiction of this world and the implications of it. And uh, I mean, just because something's spelled out for you doesn't mean there's no significance there. And it's it's actually really amazing. That stuff stood out to me the second time I watched it. Yeah, definitely. I, I was also I was un, I was able to understand uh, <laughs> uh, Immortan Joe. Immortan Joe. Yeah, I was able to understand Immortan Joe a lot better the second time. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, this is a uh, you know there's the joke that uh, you know this is the film that you can understand Tom Hardy and there's another weirdo in a mask that's kind of inaudible. It, it was funny how eager Tom Hardy was to get out of that mask though. <laughs> He's no, like, not again, not again. <laughs> they're trapping him for the, the new DC films. He won't have it. Um, so every and thing that's one of the things I would people 
people who don't like this are few and far between or don't like it as much. And oh. the thing they overlook is how well developed ev- and how interesting every single character. And I'm not exaggerating. Every character the camera gives a prolonged glance at is so intriguing. From the muscle to Immortan Joe uh, to especially Nick Holt, including an especially Nick oh, Holt play. My, the most, <laughs> maybe the most complete arc in the whole movie. Yes. Oh, from he starts from this person who's just eager for acceptance from Immortan Joe and War Dogs. Seeking... They're called War Dogs. Oh, War Dogs. Yes, thank you. Yeah, so, you know, he's part, He's just a, he's a grunt, basically. They could have easily phoned in this character, anyone like that. It's just like, oh, yeah, he's a grunt, he has very clear motivations, he's going to die. Um, no, they they took him, uh, as you said, along this very complete arc from the beginning. This person who's just eager for acceptance, is so happy when Immortan Joe glances his way, and, you know, maybe he looked at him, maybe he didn't. And then he's he's excited to die for what he believes in, you know. Be you know, I live, I die, I live again is a line he repeats. Um, you know, going to Valhalla. That's their another thing that they're entrenched in their religion, this world, and you get a taste of it. It, it was fantastic, and Nick Holt, god damn it, he's good. <laughs> One of my favorite aspects about that society is the complexity of this religion, or at least the detail in this religion they formed, without really any. It's not really fair to say there's no exposition in the film. It's just not verbal. It's visual. Um, you see, like, before they pursue Furiosa in the war rig, you see this giant tree, and it's basically a shrine of wheels. Um, and they, they've adopted slang like chrome and shiny, and they spray themselves with chrome paint when they're, like, getting really jacked up in a, in a battle. And they basically created an entire religion that worships cars and vehicles and the things that can actually that mean their survival in this world and the fact that I, I i just i love the idea that there's going to be somebody a warlord uh a leader who basically rallies people around a religion based on these things and takes advantage of their needs to manipulate them and control them um yeah. and there's some wonderful images in the first in like even the first like 10 or 15 minutes that I've heard comparisons to films like Metropolis, just but like this idea of like this hierarchical societal structure uh, where basically, you know, the caste system literally goes from the ground up and you just this you see this giant complex called the Citadel uh, and Morton Joe on top and this giant skull giving a limited water supply to these peasants below. And it's such a it's not realistic, but it's. I don't know. There's something about it that's it's it's a beautiful, terrifying, scary vision that I completely buy into. It's 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 a little caricatured. I think is probably what you're looking uh, for. It is it's... caricatured. It's exaggerated in, in a beautiful and artistic way. Like it's. I mean, these films have never been. I guess I can't really. I, uh, disclaimer here. Uh, I have not seen any of the original Mad Max films. Me either. Um, and I was going I'm right to, there with you. I was going to catch up on them uh, this weekend before we. And filmed then you this. saw Mad Max again, didn't you? I did see Mad Max Fury Road <laughs> again. Um, yeah. Uh, but I, I, I'm actually kind of happy. I, I understand that these are huge blind spots, and I need to fix this, and I will eventually. Um, both of us will, James. Um, yes, I'm with you. But, Don't but, worry. But I, I do think it's kind of important to to. Uh, look at this film and analyze it as it stands on its own, uh, which uh, is surprisingly very, very well. Uh, it, it, 
it's not dependent on the other films in the slightest. I, yeah, I think George Miller didn't he didn't he comment about this about whether or not it's canon or a remake or reboot. Um, he did a bit. I mean, from my understanding, it's technically a reboot, um, but it's also not. George Miller's never really been one to uh, hammer in continuity in the series. Um, like the the character who plays in Morton Joe played Toe Cutter, the main the leader of the main villain biker gang in the original Mad Max. Um, and hell, there's a there's a character or there's an actor uh, who flies a his character flies a gyrocopter in the second Mad Max film, and in the third Mad Max film, he it's played this similar role. It's played by the same actor who also flies a gyrocopter, but is a completely different character. So I mean continuity is kind of uh, these films have always seemed to be kind of self-contained um and this is just stuff i've researched by the way i haven't once again i haven't seen the other films in their entirety i think i saw thunderdome a bit on tv a long time ago but not (laughs) i cannot talk about them hey that counts you you're qualified man oh yeah man mad max expert um (laughs) so yeah those are blind spots but i do think fury road stands on its own beautifully it's such a realized world um yeah i love it yeah the how do you think the theme played oh, actually let's i want to skip this for a second okay. what did you th- what did you think of the opening like sh- the opening shot of uh mad max running through the these narrow corridors and it the that frame was, rate is like slowed down a little the, that was not the opening shot that was the yeah 10 minutes i thought you literally meant the opening oh just, shot of him oh like uh, him um, stepping on a gecko sorry yeah, it's one um, of it's it's what sticks out to me as the opening shot, but it's not the, the, right. the pursuit in the beginning of him like going through these cavernous corridors, being chased and, by right. war boys. Yeah, um, you know, I'm not gonna lie, uh, I got kind of skeptical, <laughs> um, just because the the things like a, a sped up frame rate. It, uh, yeah, that was weird. It, it it gives a weird effect, and unless like it's reincorporated later in the film in, in a way that's really effective and actually good because there is so much kinetic energy happening and it just kind of puts the cherry on top of that um with that opening sequence though it because it's a pretty cut and dry chase um Mm -hmm. a a lot of much less talented directors than george miller use that kind of technique to create motion and uh urgency in situations that don't necessarily have that um, and I just don't think that there was enough going on in that initial chase to warrant it. It kind of jarred me, and I, I actually was a little uh, un- unsure about how the rest of the film was going to play out. Uh, I think it's that's probably the weakest quote-unquote action piece in the whole film. And um, actually, it's kind of on a similar note. Um, every single time I thought, the film capped out in terms of action like okay that's that's a climax that's i don't see where i can go from here it upped its game every single time in the subsequent beat yeah. I, I i'll talk more about that later but uh. no i think the first the first the, not the first the opening chase sequence i'll say i i, I want to know like what that looks like when it's just filmed normally i think it would have been fine like, I, it probably would have i i don't like it it's a technique used later in the film to greater effect, um, so it's unified with the rest of the movie. But I don't think it was necessary. Yeah, it's sort of bookended, but <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, I, it's not. It, yeah, no, I mean, I wasn't. I was skeptical at that point, to say the least. Um, but, but, all right, and the film went on. 
<laughs> and the, film went, the film went on and it got much better. Um, yeah, how do you think it played with its, its one theme of, you know, seeking survival and that's the only instinct? You know, that's where we jacked our opening line from, by the way. You know, Mad yeah. Max is a, is a reduced to a single instinct to survive. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the starting point for Tom Hardy as Max. Um, and a lot of reviews, many reviews of this film have kind of, not criticized, but pointed out that Tom Hardy kind of takes backseat in this movie to uh, Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron, and uh, I, uh, a lot of the female characters, actually, um, all of whom are uh, developed in terms of character, all of whom, uh, you know, get lines and, like, actual, you know, character and screen time. Um, I think it's kind of one of those... Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like that assessment of Tom Hardy is kind of surface level as well. I do think he he does go through some kind of change or some kind of journey throughout this film where he learns to work with other people and to trust other people, but it doesn't culminate in an ending that's conventional. It doesn't culminate in him just becoming a part of society all of a sudden. Um, yeah, I think both his character and performance have sort of been underrated. Like, he's significant in both his actions he's doing, you know, like, physically what he's doing, you know, saving this person, accomplishing this, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he also does have significant, like, depth to him. It's very nuanced. I, it's not It's not something that he wears on his sleeve, but it's something I think you can definitely read into his, to his character. He does change in his interactions with people, obviously from the beginning of the film where he's in a cage acting as a blood donor a blood bag to Nick Holt uh, to Nick Holt yeah which is uh, the the dynamic of them being chained together is is a stroke of absolute genius no i i like that every time you think that that Tom Hardy every t- this is an, this would be an action convention every time you think that Tom Hardy's just going to bust out and go ape shit and then take over the the screen and be real badass it's like he tries and then it doesn't quite work out right you know it's like he's there's a scene of him when he's strapped to the car it's like oh he can almost get his hands out of the latch and then he's gonna fuck shit up and that doesn't happen you know he's he crashes and then has to try to steal this truck to survive and he's stealing this truck that's full of like helpless women and he kicks them out and starts driving away yeah he was in, he was in a position where he was like i don't care about you he doesn't care whatever about your story is no i'm gonna go on by myself bye no um and by that point in the film you know what furiosa is about you know that her pers- that her goal is ultimately uh is ultimately admirable you know we're kind of on her side and mm-hmm. the the quote-unquote hero of the film is basically having a a showdown with her and and trying to get a gun on her uh to rob her of all her resources and leave her and these women she's saving from an evil warlord stranded in the desert um it's a really dark take on someone <laughs> you expect to be a protagonist right <laughs> like wait a second a- a- absolutely um yeah i know it's a it's a really dark turn and uh tom hardy sells it so well where he's never being overtly malevolent or being an asshole he's he, he's doing what he can to survive it and honestly you you could you can see a perspective from every single main character in this film uh nick holt in this devotional uh adoration of a morton joe even like it, it you kind of pity him at the beginning in the beginning segment of the film uh, even though he is on the 
bad side the he's he's antagonistic toward uh charlie Theron. um i will say the one element of uh max's character and his development that i didn't like was uh this notion that he gets these flashes from people he failed to save in his past. Um, oh, th- yeah, that, that, that happened in the opening shot. Yeah, that happened. That happens throughout the film, in basically situations that's convenient for Max to have some kind of obstacle. And I, I just feel like I've seen that's one of the few elements in this film that seem trite that I've seen so many times, and that still doesn't really make sense. That's that's not how grief. Okay, so I, didn't, I don't know that I don't know if maybe any of these people showed up at the past Mad Max films. So I mean, may, it's, maybe it's, that's what we're missing. The implication is that it's his family because that's, yeah. that, that's the plot of the former Mad Max films is that he, it basically his family was run down by a motor gang, so he's kind of you know on his own trying to avenge them basically. So here, here's the thing: I I didn't like it at first, but it's sort of one of those things that I thought about. I really like that every time that they showed up, they're sort of like in his way. You know, they're 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 not steering him in the right direction. So the then a few times it actually did happen, or they didn't steer him in the right direction, but he chose to turn away from that. And this was especially at the toward the end when it seems like Mad Max is going to go his separate way from Charlie's Theron. Of course he's not, but how does he get there? He gets there by. Uh, not listening to this vision of a of presumably his daughter uh who's telling him okay come on let's go this way and then he turns back to go Charlize Theron I thought that was powerful part of it yeah but that's not that's still to me that's a screenwriting construct that's not like how humans actually remember people and how and how traumas manifest that's not like that that's kind of a weakness in the script for me and like honestly one of the few in, in this picture i just thought that that was completely constructed and just something that kind of gave him that it basically externalized that conflict which i don't necessarily think he needed to do i think tom hardy's a capable enough actor to embody that in, with just his face no he did just his face he used and he did grunts that. and he did and he, did, he used and grunts he in this movie yeah, i loved it, it, every time he, oh my he just God. expressed it, it, emotions just by going like mm. He he had a, a there, there's a final scene where I'm not going to spoil who but he's he's basically saving somebody he cares about and his his alternative to crying over you know the potential of of their loss is uh, is to just to grunt to reveal his name a little personal piece of information about himself and then just grunt and then mm-hmm. and that, yeah. that is something like I don't know that any other actor could have, could have pulled no, it off convincingly no it was so good I that, that was. Actually, for me, that's the standout. If if he were to get nominated for this film for an Academy Award, which will never fucking happen, but if he it did, would be because of that scene. I, I, I would I would want them to play that scene, which they would also never do because it's so unshowy and it's so small. But that's I mean that's everything that's great about his performance. Yeah, it's nuance. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's the little things that make Tom a Hardy. Tom Hardy embodies that. If we t- I want to talk more about him in later podcasts, just because he, he's done so much impressive work and I, he's he's obviously becoming more. Uh, well known now, mm-hmm. but uh, man, I I just think he's honestly he's worth studying. He's so good. He's so fascinating. Not just in this movie and, and a lot of his roles. Um, mm-hmm. So no, I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't disappointed by Max as a character uh, at all. Um, though it is kind of hard to argue that Furiosa doesn't kind of 
command the screen when she's, she's on it. She's the star. I'm not. She's gonna the lie. star if, of this film. She's a, um, he's like a supporting actor almost. I will say. Yeah. Uh, I think his character is significant in that fact. In the same, I, I was about to say in the same way that the Joker is significant. Not quite that the same way, but it, even though that Heath Ledger is a supporting actor, he still plays a big part. Yeah. Um, so the concept is there. Uh, I. But Charlize Theron, she stole it. Every time she was on it, she was like, this is my shot. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> uh, fuck you. I don't get that many opportunities for roles like this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take advantage of it for all it's worth. And God damn it, did she kill it. I, 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 the, every character I believed, but her is pro- her, Charlize I, Theron is probably the next level of believing. Like I, I, I was with her the entire way. Uh, oh, oh, it's like I mean, it's like one of those characters that. I mean, kind of going back to a Star Wars Indiana Jones analogy, it's like kind of one of those characters who I have in my head now. Who she's in like my bank of like famous movie characters, and I can go back. Hmm. I can go back to her as just a focal point for for uh, mainstream films like this. She's she's spectacular she has a, a backstory that's uh, that's a, a tragic backstory that's only referenced very briefly in dialogue she's got so much she's got so much history that we'd never get to see or know but it, it's it influences her and you and, know and it. you can see it all on her face and the way she acts and how resourceful she is and oh man i can't say enough good about about charlie's about charlie's theron and uh and Imperiosa in this film. Holy I, I hope, God. as you as you uh, told me before, I hope this has sort of industrial influence. I, yeah, I, yeah, I think... As you said, this is an R-rated movie, R-rated summer blockbuster with a largely female starring cast. Yeah. I, this I, this is an anomaly, and is, I hope it has an influence, as you said. It is. I hate, I hate things like the Bechdel test, which, like... Are, are a really superficial way to determine whether or not the film marginalizes women. But I do think it's interesting that this film passes that... Te- the Bechdel test is the... You know, it, it asks three questions of a film. Are there two female... Two named female characters, at least? Um, and do they t- talk? Are they... Do they talk to one another? And do they talk about something other than a man for... Yeah, yeah, that's what I heard about this before. Um, It's kind of a... It's a really superficial way to determine whether a film... uh, You know, how a film treats a particular gender. Um, But uh, I just... I do find it interesting that this film passes that test like a hundred times over. <laughs> like, yeah, with with everyone with, too. With absolutely everyone, and even every single one of the wives who I don't actually necessarily. And this isn't, but like this isn't me ignoring it. I don't necessarily remember all of their names because they're not really explicitly named that often. Yeah. Um, but every single one of them, I I, I can tell you who they are, what their personality is. Um, uh, what their relationship is to all of the other characters in the war rig. Also, if you're going to talk about powerful female roles in this film, uh, you you can't you can't neglect the many mothers who show up uh, in maybe the last third of the film uh, when they they get to their destination is is the place that Charlie Theron grew up called the Green Place, um, and there they encounter basically this little uh, nomadic society of of women um many of whom are older who've been kind of just surviving out in the desert and uh, holy shit if are the like these are some of the coolest like this is one of the coolest female ensembles i've ever seen especially they're also well developed and they're all well developed 
they there's the the one who has a, a bag full of seeds as heirlooms of the world that they used to live in. Yeah, um, and it's sort of a hope too that once yeah. the world is back to normal, we need plants. You they know, I'm, plant I'm, them. Yeah, it's and all um not to spoil the climax of the film, but I I also love how when the many mothers join uh you know join. Furiosa and Mad Max and the the wives in the war, you know, in their pursuit at the end of the film, they're not untouchable. People die. Yes. <laughs> they are not, not afraid to kill characters off and really kill them off. Um, yeah, they, they're not the, the saviors at the end of the movie. They're not fucking Ewoks no, or anything. They're not no. Ewoks. They're not the little, you know, the innocents who take down the big corrupts. No, they're people. They're flesh and blood people. And they are, they, they take part in the action just like everybody else, and they are vulnerable, and and some people die. Yeah, that was really powerful. Also, just, I still can't get over, and I think about this when I'm when I'm thinking about the, the many mothers, because they were in a, a lot of these shots. How did they film some of this stuff? I would love to see some behind-the-scenes uh, oh you know, well, footage, it, because... <laughs> It's so everything, almost everything was practical. They had some CG of like maybe an approaching sandstorm. Yeah, George Miller uh, described it. I think it's about ninety percent practical or or physically happening there. There is technically a difference between practical effects and and actually just stunts. Um, that's true. Yeah, but but ninety percent real organic uh, effects or stunts or action, and ten percent computer uh, computer generated imagery. Yeah, and the camera has was everywhere all oh. the time. As you said earlier in the show, you you sort of had this great outward picture of what was happening. Yeah. Uh, even though it never gives you that, it never like pans out. It's like okay, this is what happened. You just sort of know where everyone is at yeah. all times. I'm taking this, I believe, from uh, the Film Spotting uh, 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 streaming videos unit podcast. Um, but I, I they, they summed it up perfectly. Uh, they said that. The first, I'm paraphrasing, but the first major car chase in the film uh, is is better than the climaxes of any, like pretty much any car chase action film uh, in recent memory. And Easy, it's, and, it, and it's also easily the worst car chase in the film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's so, and also that's where I believe most of the footage from the trailer comes from. So if you're kind of if if you're at, Skeptical. On the fence, yeah, saw the trailer, and you're like, eh. like, the best stuff's in the trailer. Oh, uh, no, no, no. No. <laughs> the best is yet to come, believe me. Yeah, I, like it, I said, every single one kind of one-ups the one the, the action sequence that came before. It's, it's It ups the ante every time. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know what's another actually really interesting thing about the way that the particularly the final sequence was filmed? Uh, did you know the actually the older actresses, the uh, many mothers, they did their mm. own stunts. What? Yeah, um, the NPR actually did an interview uh, uh, with the actress who played sort of the main older woman. Uh, she's 78 years old, and uh, here's her quote. She she said that she and the other actresses did their own stunts. Her quote is, uh, and I got the feeling from a lot of the crew members that they didn't think it was right, uh, women of my age, to be doing that sort of thing. You know, sometimes they'd come up and say, oh, uh, he shouldn't ask you to do that. And I would say, why? And they'd say, well, because you're an older woman. I did it, and I have to say I enjoyed every minute of it. Yeah, and also I think uh, it was uh, – they did that to make it sort of more realistic as to what these women would actually be 
capable of doing and they, yeah. they don't just make them cartoons like oh a granny with a gun as like a punchline you know it's Ooh, the taking... granny does a triple backflip kick yeah. to the face the, yeah, uh, uh, to avoid uh the Yo- i call it yoda effect you know oh yeah uh, exactly yeah. uh yoda at the end of attack of the clones fuck you george lucas um <laughs> yeah they, they it's taken completely seriously and it's it's just good to see that much respect i guess like maybe respects the right word Paid to paid to these characters who in other movies could be a punchline. That's that's so well put. I can't I can't even add to that in any <laughs> effective way. <laughs> yeah. um, you you vested me today, Mike. Oh well, thank you, good sir. Um, no, I, I, like my I, I I love this movie. I'm completely on board with it, and I I really hope that it's I I hope it does have an industrial influence. I hope that studios will be willing to take a chance on I, I mean look at this objectively this is a even if you take into account the pre-existing material this is a weird fucking movie oh yeah really weird movie it's a movie where you're immediately you're thrown into a post-apocalyptic world with the only explanation given for that world really being that the world like ran out of, the world ran out of fuel and water it's a fuel and water crisis, honestly. That, that's... Oh, I heard I heard something about nukes. Oh, maybe in, the... oh, in the opening. Bit. In the opening, oh, like, you know, yeah. That, that, that could be. It's kind of a jumbled montage of sound. It is, yeah. Um, but you, you're thrown into the world with that really being the only explanation you're given. And you're immediately surrounded by a crazy cult of car worshippers with a, with a masked, deformed leader who's kind of a, a perversion of Darth Vader. Uh, and they had a very <laughs> parallel scene of him getting on his they, suit. They did. To By the Darth way, Vader. Yeah. they did. It's just, it's just weird. Everything is so weird. And, and there's no, there's no, um, you know, kind of to bring the star Wars comparison back. And actually I'm going to contrast it here. There's no mm-hmm. hero's journey. There's no protagonist that we can connect. There's, pro- there's protagonists we can connect to, but there's no every man, you know, there's no, there's no person who stands in for us, the audience who's there to ask all the questions and to give us the explanations that we need. None yeah. I brought up the star Wars comparison before. There's a scene where you dra- where they're driving past this sort of like swampy area. And there's these people on stilts that that's how they have to get around. And there was no Ben Kenobi there to tell us that those are the sand people. <laughs> I I love that. I, yeah, I, I yeah. had no questions there. I didn't need that answer. Yeah, for there, me. there's no Luke Skywalker here. Um, it, it's it's just Han Solo, and another and that's awesome. And another Han Solo. Yeah. It, it's basically a movie full of Han Solos, running from Darth Vader. It's <laughs> um one of the actually I want to bring up about uh the villains in this film, which are essentially, there's three villains. There's uh, a Morton Joe's obviously the main one, um, mm-hmm. but there are also these two uh, kind of uh, not rival. They're, you know, these other supplemental armies that kind of join in the chase. Uh, one of, one of which comes from the bullet farm led by uh, uh, the bullet farmer. <laughs> uh, God, that was simple. And then the other one, <laughs> The other uh, group that comes from Gastown, led by the People Eater, and I love that every like all three of those leaders, those central male figures in authority, they're not physically intimidating. They're all deformed and grotesque, and they're 
not threatening in a conventional way, but they're otherworldly and terrifying in, in kind of a deeper, more visceral way that I can't really explain. But they're even that, even the villains, the representation of of evil or antagonism is unconventional. I love yeah, no, that. I think I think on the whole like deformed thing, I actually, in my mind, that's why I, I clung so hard to the, I clinged so hard to the. Uh, uh, nuclear thing because I think we just nuked ourselves into oblivion and now everyone's all fucked up from radiation. That was that was my idea of it. I don't know if it's I actually mean, true. It, it could be. It, you yeah. really don't know. Um, th- there is a lot of deformity in this movie. Though. Even even in the um, even in the uh, represented by like uh, peasants on the ground who maybe don't have legs or are uh, mm-hmm. uh, some some. Maybe some part of them got cut off or has been burned. And they make reference to a, a baby in this film being a perfect specimen. You know, yeah, they're yeah. completely normal, and that was a big deal. I had a baby brother, and it was perfect, perfect <laughs> every way. Yeah, that that was one of those character moments from who someone who could just be like the big muscle yeah, in the movie. Yeah. Right, uh, Erectus. Right, that was a Erectus, which is a weird name. Now I'm was thinking it? about it. I, I wish I. had... I actually forgot the other name, otherwise I would have just called him by that. Um, <laughs> so we got a big erection in this movie. He uh, loves his big baby brother. Who's Darth Vader's son. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Great. Uh, yeah. No, it's... Uh, Mad Max is fantastic. You mentioned uh, the Avatar comparison earlier. Actually, the one that I'm kind of more... Um, I, I'm kind of more concerned about is uh, the connection with that I'm making between this movie and Gravity. Um, oh. Because, see, to me, Gravity is a similar film that I think the filmmaking on display, more, way more so than something like Avatar, is that the filmmaking is impeccable. The plot itself is very pared down, very streamlined, and, and almost, like, barely there a periphery. Um, that's not true. It's It's a prominent part, but it's, you know, it's simple. It's not a very complex story. Um, the, o- and, the only reason... I, sorry, go on. Oh, go on. and then just the idea that, you know, the effect of gravity waned on us um, after we initially saw it in the theater and were awed by the spectacle of it. Um, I'm, I'm a little weary that I'm going to have a similar reaction to Mad Max, where once the spectacle wears off, because holy shit, is there spectacle in this movie? Um, once the spectacle wears off, I... I won't find as much there, but like I said, there's still so much character, so much nuance and, and world building that, that really affected me. So I'm not ultimately too concerned about that, but I, I, I also think that uh, it's a much more reasonable comparison than Avatar. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. And I think, I think spectacle is playing a large role in some of the hyperbole I've been hearing, not saying I don't love this movie, but I mean, I, I've heard some really, really, uh, boisterous praise that I, I can't even necessarily entirely be on board with in terms of how huge and groundbreaking this movie is. Yeah. Uh, all right. We'll probably have to leave it there. Uh, but if you haven't seen this movie, see it. Yeah, definitely uh, see it. Please. I don't want to actually, I, I want to, I don't want to leave on that negative note because I, I fucking love this movie. It's, it's like I said, my favorite action film I've seen in years. Um, I compared it to Star Wars and Indiana Jones. I compared it to The Dark Knight. Um, yeah. So or I said it's the best action film I've seen since The Dark Knight. So now, if you're saying this, please go see it. Yeah, you, you won't be disappointed. Not at all. I'm gonna go so, see it a third time. I, yeah. No, I'm. I'm. I want really want to see it a third time. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's sad. That's all my money. Uh, and we have to see Tomorrowland this week. Oh, yeah. Is that what we're doing next week? I mean, unless you come up with something no, better, I think, we'll be I think Bad Bird's I think, Tomorrowland. Yep, I think Tomorrowland's great. Um, I'm a big Brad Bird fan, and uh, I'm pretty much always excited to see what he does next. I, I hope Tomorrowland doesn't disappoint. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to move on. We're not doing an On the Contrary segment. We want to mix things up, so we sort of, like, improv this uh, uh, half hour or so before we actually started recording, wow, so we hope it goes well. how close to the chest we played it. And how we, we play everything close to the chest. Jeez. We're off the cuff. We're exciting. You can't we're... Just say that we spent the weekend thinking about it. Yeah, you know, we we actually been laboring over this segment for uh, five months, which is odd, because we only just started this about, like, seven weeks ago. Big episode. Um, um, yeah, <laughs> we were like, Mad Max is going to be the shit, let's, let's mm-hmm. get this going. Uh, but we're going to do some some lists, and instead of just doing a top five list, uh, Mike is going to be doing a top five post-apocalyptic movies, yep. and I'm going to be doing a bottom five post-apocalyptic movie, so you're going to get some some best and the worst, if you will. Yeah, best and the worst, yeah, that's a good best one. And the, that's actually snappy, man. <laughs> wow, on the cuff, Jesus. Look at Boom, that. see, I told you, right, right off the cuff, we're exciting, we're interesting. You never know what's going to happen on talking in the movie, but now you do, because we're going to do this top five post-apocalyptic films. All right, so we're gonna start off on the top then. You, you're gonna, so you're gonna start at five. Mike's right. gonna start at five. Uh, his fifth best, and then I'm gonna do my fifth worst, and then we're gonna continue in that pattern. Okay, cool. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna try and get through them quick, uh, mainly cause, yeah, yeah. because we did this so close to the chest. I didn't obviously get a chance to revisit these anytime recently. Um, I'm going off of my memories, so I, you know, that's fine. Um, I think that's okay. Um, I just want to. Uh, give a, a quick disclaimer here obviously i mentioned before i haven't seen any of the mad max films so road warrior or even the initial mad max not going to be on my list but i think that's okay especially for the nature of this episode uh consider that consider it in like a memorial list you know like it's in memorandum in memorandum yeah exactly um so those won't be on here although they they could very well deserve to be there i haven't seen the films sorry um, okay and uh just a like one other, uh, one or two other omissions. Uh, Blade Runner's not in here. Apparently, it, it, it doesn't technically count as a post-apocalyptic film. It's just kind of a dark future film. Um, and uh, I also didn't include any of the Terminator films because I figure those take place in what was the modern day. So, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't consider those uh, as eligible, even though they could be considered that. I, th- and, I think maybe Rise of the Machines, you could make a case that's post-apocalyptic. Uh, but, then, but... but then I wouldn't include it, because it's Rise Yeah, exactly. Machines. You wouldn't put that in your top five. Or <laughs> <laughs> the ones I was looking at. Um, yeah. So I love all those films, I mean, except the Mad Max, because I haven't seen them. Um, but they are not on this list. So my number five uh, is actually a kid's movie. Uh, a uh, little little gem called Wally. Um, oh yeah of course okay i was like where are you gonna go with are you, this like me and kind of forgot that was actually a post-apocalyptic movie. no no i just you said kids movie i was like what the fuck is yeah, that right? post-apocalyptic well, kids movie i'm like oh yeah it's wally you know i I'm, i really <laughs> hope they didn't pitch it as a post-apocalyptic kids movie but like that's what... <laughs> they go to the studio the the sleazy uh producer <laughs> in that sense it's even more revolutionary and groundbreaking than fury road but um that's what it is though it is a kids movie about the remnants of what was once our society that is consumed with so much trash that little a little robot named Wally has to uh, basically pack it into buildings. Um, and I, I love the description that... Actually, I think the way Pixar uh, uh, pitched the film was essentially that uh, everyone, left wor- everyone left the world and someone forgot to turn their toaster off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but... Um, 
God, I, I, I love Wally. I admire it so much. Just not just as a kids' film, but just as a piece of uh, largely silent cinema. At least for the first twenty minutes, uh, it's my favorite. It's my favorite opening segment in any film ever. I think. Um, just okay. The, I mean, the God, the detail and the darkness of this world, and how well the the comedy plays into the dark themes beautiful i love it i i don't think that pixar's ever really topped that um i'm a little on board with people who say the movie loses steam when it you know during like the latter part where it goes actually up into the ship and you see what's become of humanity that the images of what we left behind are a lot darker and more memorable than you know what's become of our society yeah yeah no i i agree with that um i I still like it as a number five choice i think that's fine honestly though i still love those sequences though i love it up in the axiom it gets a bit more preachy but there's still beautiful moments like wally and eve the defined dancing sequence where they're going around the ship and the beautiful scores kind of kind of uh, bringing home the emotion of it and it's cross-cut with uh, the pilot of the ship inside asking the computer to define dancing you can call that sappy, but it's it's to me that's beautiful and pure cinema. Um, and yeah, Wally, I don't know, Wally uh, just made a huge impact on me when I saw it, and I kind of actually forgot about it that it was a post when I was thinking about this list at first that it was a post-apocalyptic movie because it's so like it's so full of emotion, not just dourness. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I I love it. I, I, okay. I, it's a really close to my heart. So, yeah, well. Okay, I, I want to make some disclaimers for mine, too. Just real quick, I haven't seen what is very likely number one and number two on anyone's objective list, and that is uh, uh, M. Night Shyamalan's After Earth. Did not see that, didn't want to waste my time, and I haven't seen uh, Nicolas Cage stars in um, Left Behind. So, sorry, those are probably number one and number two, as I said, based on my completely superficial <laughs> analysis. Uh, but. I, those aren't going to be on my list, so don't don't. We're really at it. a golden age of post-apocalyptic movies, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, well, hey, Mad Max, you're, you're doing a lot of work I, for that. We actually are kind of now. Thank yeah. Uh, but my, my number five, it's sort of a post-apocalyptic film, and that's why it's um, that's why it's on my number five spot, and, and because I didn't want to do another shitty zombie movie, which is going to come up later. So my number five is I, Frankenstein. And in every in every sense, it is 100% not a post-apocalyptic film. But Apocalypse is fucking happening. The, all the battles take place... What is essentially the middle of a city. It's a giant cathedral in the middle of a city where there's gargoyles fighting above, like, f- hellfire and brimstone is raining down. Not that the film ever points this out or ever, like, goes to the fact that, oh, we're, we're also destroying the city and there are real lives at stake here. Um... But it is a post-apocalyptic movie, and it is absolute gutter trash. So I can't, I can't think of any other film that would be at number five and doesn't fit. And it is also not a similar theme to one of my others. I don't want to beat a dead horse with with bad zombie movies or things like that. Um, but this film had nothing going for it in terms of you know we didn't want to, you want to talk about in Mad Max how every character was interesting. There wasn't a single character in this movie that was interesting. It's the it's the polar opposite of that. Aaron Eckhart, if you want to say there's a gem in this movie, I guess it's Aaron Eckhart because he tried his damnedest. But this movie was beyond saving. There there was no one you could put in, in his role that would have saved this film. You put fucking Leo there, and it's his performance is of course going to be great, but the movie's still going to be shit. And that's why actors like Leo don't take shitty roles. 
Aaron Eckhart might learn this someday, but he also wants to get a paycheck. So uh, that's my number five. What would you put for number four? Wow, you just will never give up a chance to talk about I Frankenstein. Jesus, you I, your hate for this movie is legendary. Is it? I didn't even know it was that legendary. I, I don't know. I've heard you talk. I, you were the person I've heard talk about it more than anyone else. That's because I'm the only one you know who's seen this. Uh, yeah, movie. everyone's content to just forget it ever happened. Yeah, I, and I saw it on Netflix because I was curious in morbid in a morbid way. Uh, all right. Yeah. Uh, okay, my number four is probably the most conventional no it is the most conventional entry on my list and it may be groan inducing but i don't care it has to be done it's uh, the matrix um, okay no 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 that, you're fine you're fine <laughs> i'm not I, you're not gonna get any any guff I, from I, me about I, that look i will defend it at, to anyone to people who say it's not original or 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 it doesn't have unique ideas i say of course it wears its influences on its sleeve uh what it's like star wars what matters is how it synthesizes all these elements from mythology and religion and anime and these different art forms into what i still think is a fucking amazing science fiction action film uh, one of the best ever made um and I mean, I don't want to really talk about this one for too long because literally every single bit from the film has been embedded into pop culture so deeply that it's become a cliche. But that's yeah. how, that's how power. <laughs> but it's powerful because these weren't even it, like things like bullet time, uh, th- like the the uh, hotel lobby shoot, you know, action shooting sequence. Like th- these things weren't even around in any iteration before and and now they are cliches from this one movie like how often yeah, this is the film you... that made it a cliche yeah like yeah. i mean we we say that before but like how many times can you literally pinpoint all those cliches as a reference to one movie like that's it it's nuts um i, I still watch it today i still feel i mean i obviously wasn't old enough to watch it in 1999 when it came out um but I, for me even despite elements that people may think haven't aged well I, it still affects me every time and honestly i saw the matrix before i read plato or any of the philosophical texts that uh, inspired it so oh, plato plato i thought you said plato i watched the matrix before i played with plato um okay yeah, before i saw any of the you know before i experienced any of the philosophical influences that you know, is where the film's ideas really come from. Um, so, I mean, honestly, The Matrix is the movie for me that got me to look at the world as a construction. Whether, I mean, whether or not it's literally a computer program is yet to be seen. It's it's <laughs> it's not, but... Um, but uh, I, I like that. The, the, it, 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 gets, it got me to view the world differently. It got me to see it as a construction that humans... Cre- you know, it's something that humans created. That... that isn't a universal truth it, it so which i mean it changed the way i view the world is that not a one of the highest compliments you can give a movie um, that, that's i i agree with that my my number four is in a, a very similar vein i can say uh because your your number four the matrix looks at the uh humanity and this film tries to miserably to explore the idea of losing one's humanity and that is George A. Romero's Survival of the Dead. Oh no, is that his newest one? That is, it's well, it's newest. It's the, it's pretty old. I think it was maybe 2010 at okay, this point. Okay, James, that's old is 1927. Okay, all right, fine, fine. I was, 
I, what got me thinking about this was how I didn't really, I, I'm, I'm underwhelmed today by seeing the original Night of the Living Dead, and I was like, okay, hold on, George A. Romero's made much more shit than that, so let's, let's keep on going, and I landed on Survival of the Dead, this is the film that successfully destroyed the Of the Dead series, the George A. Romero's Of the Dead series, yeah. they were making them, they were churning them out, they had Land of the Dead, Diary of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Survival of the Dead, boom, 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 boom. And then, uh, oh, and then Survival of the Dead came out, and nothing else will ever be made on this series because people saw this. It didn't get even get that big of a release, and then I literally have not heard of that movie until you just mentioned it. Yeah, no, and what no. what little it didn't get that big of a release, and what little release it did have, people hated it because it was just a slog of just meaningless pontification about life and then it tried to also be a, a horror movie at the same time which is what George A. Romero tries to do he tries to make all his films with some sort of social commentary and it was ham handed and it had no genuine scares in it so you couldn't even enjoy it at a popcorn level and honestly if that's the be- if that's the best that George A. Romero can do anymore good riddance like stay out of my movies he, he went on to do the crazies in 2010 which wasn't terrible I guess he remade his own movie um but whatever. He didn't direct uh, that. He only produced it. Oh, he it. didn't direct it. Oh, okay, whatever. I guess he would have to produce it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so to this date, Survival of the Dead is the last George A. Romero directed film. It is, actually. Um, how many of those Of the Dead films are there? Like, official George A. Romero ones. Are there six? Uh, yeah, and I think there are six. Night of, so Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and then after and then a long break, Land, of the, Land dead, of the Dead, Diary of the Dead, and Survival of the Dead. Exactly. I did see Land of the Dead and Survival of the Dead, and, and I didn't hate those. Um, and then, sorry, Land of the Dead and Diary of the Dead, and I didn't hate those. But I hated, hated, hated Survival of the Dead, uh, channeling my Roger Ebert. <laughs> so that's Great. why it is the fourth worst post-apocalyptic film. Great. Uh, what do you got for number three? Uh, so this one is kind of debatable as to whether or not it counts. It's actually not technically post-apocalyptic, um, but it's about the end of the world and how wonderfully absurd it is. Uh, it's it's uh, Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strange Love. Um, oh, okay. Which I think counts because, uh, sorry, spoiler alert, the world blows up at the end. Um, what? Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, it's maybe a technicality that's on here, but it counts. Um, and it's on here because out of all the post-apocalyptic films I've ever seen, it's the one that nails down the absurdity of uh, human-induced apocalypse, uh, the comic absurdities to a T. It's It's hilarious it's it's one of the best social commentary films i've ever seen uh and i can't even imagine what it must have been like to see this film in the pits of the cold war like when the world maybe was actually going to blow up tomorrow um it's uh i love the story behind it too because it actually started off as just a straight up adaptation of this pretty like alarmist dramatic novel called red alert um, and which essentially had the same plot, but it was completely serious and straight faced. And uh, as Stanley Kubrick and uh, the writer Terry Southern were pitching ideas about the screenplay, uh, they couldn't help but keep cracking jokes and laughing. And uh, they just <laughs> chose to uh, go with it and develop it into yeah. a comedy. And uh, I still think it's one of the funniest movies ever made. Uh, it's got some of the some of the best uh, lines, hypocritical. Uh, it, hypocritical lines like uh, you can't fight here this is the war room um <laughs> so yeah not really a conventional uh post-apocalyptic film not a sci-fi film but uh i 
to me this is my uh this is my feel good end of the world movie oh <laughs> uh, wow that that is a, a hard thing to to find oh wow yeah. this really makes you feel good uh it's, my it's number really three good. is not at all feel good um <laughs> it uh, I have to bring in uh, Mr. Shyamalan. Oh no! What? Oh I'm... no! Oh no! The happening. <laughs> I love how you saw it coming. Uh, the happening. That is James. You put. I hope you understand. You put one of the greatest comedies of all time on your list. <laughs> if he intended it as a comedy, sure, because so that was fucking it. great. Ever watched that film as a comedy? It's amazing. Yeah, no, it's actually some grade A filmmaking. However, M. Night Shyamalan takes himself seriously. Seriously in so much that he doesn't realize that Mark Wahlberg is not taking it seriously? <laughs> At all? I'm talking, about, I'm talking about a completely superfluous bottle of cough syrup. I mean, that must cost like 10 or $11. <laughs> I, uh, I, I honestly, uh, The Happening may go on, on my list of favorite comedies one day. Yeah, but it, uh, if we're talking about post-apocalyptic films, it is the third worst, and I have no qualms about putting it there. Uh, th- there is, I, I it's like you think M Night Shyamalan takes it so seriously, but does that translate into actually trying with his films? It didn't seem like it while watching the happening, because uh, there are so much things just blatantly lazy filmmaking that went into this, and that didn't help that he, I don't know how he sat down at, at the producers' meeting and said, "Listen." It's pollen-induced mass suicide, and then he didn't get laughed out of the room. I have no idea. I don't know I how no idea how that happens anymore. It's it, his career is astounding. I yeah, I yeah. don't know how he continues to do what he does. All right, so top top that number <laughs> number three, number two, number two. Oh, oh yeah, you did your number three. Top that with your number two. Okay, so my number two, this one's probably my most esoteric uh, entry on the list. Uh, this is my artsy-fartsy one, as you would call it. Um, okay. It's, uh, it's actually a French film uh, from 1962, and it actually kind of stretches the definition of film because it's actually a series of, uh, f- of still photos played in sequence. It's called La Jetée, um, and uh, basically it's, it's actually a short film too, only 28 minutes, um, but it focuses on a man in the aftermath of World War III in Paris, who uh, basically him and the survivors of Paris live underground in these catacombs. And uh, scientists are trying to uh, basically find test subjects for time travel so that they can go to another time and uh, get aid from a future society. So uh, they test uh, their techniques on this man. Uh, who travels back in time first and uh, makes a strong... Because he has such strong uh, connections with his memories. And actually, that's the thematic uh, reason for the still images. The idea that memories are made up of these these images and our minds secluded from... Like, basically apart from their actual context. They're just images to us. So he travels back in time and uh, uh, has a relationship with this woman uh, who he remembers seeing on a pier when he was a kid. And... uh, basically uh I, I not to get too much into spoilers but it's 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 about memory it's about uh uh basically how we experience 
trauma and the world and love. Um, it's actually inspired largely by uh, Hitchcock's Vertigo in a really weird way that it's hard to explain unless you've seen the film. Um, and it was also, esoteric as it may be, it was also the inspiration for Terry Gilliam's uh, film, 12 Monkeys, with Bruce Willis and, and Brad. Okay. Um, which you, All right, you brought it into the mainstream. Which you may have heard of. Um, yeah, it's it's a beautiful film. Like I said, only 28 minutes. Um, and uh, it, it's... It, it's got a sci-fi premise, but it's actually more about these metaphysical elements. It's not even really about the world. Um, it's, I don't know, to me, it's a, it's this beautiful little, uh, gem of post-apocalyptic, uh, abstract humanism, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's, it's very, it's, it's unlike any other post-apocalyptic or sci-fi film I've ever seen. And it's really hard to describe to people who haven't seen it, but, uh, see it it's uh it, it'll only literally take half an hour and uh and it's one yeah, of the great course. films of all time honestly and I'm, it's not okay. just me who says that it was uh it was number 50 in uh sight and sounds poll of the greatest films of all time okay so we got that yeah you just want uh, me to shut no- up about my french film now <laughs> uh num- my number two has uh let's see it has the number two twice in oh. the title oh no too fast, it's... too furious. No, no, oh, that's not post apocalyptic. Uh, well, uh, is... I don't know. Uh, 2012. Oh, with John Cusack. Oh my God. Did you? Did you, oh, did you see did, this movie? Did, did you waste your life watching this movie? I mean, uh, yeah, it's yes. That <laughs> I, it's actually, they... it's cut and paste Independence Day. No, it's funny too. Yeah, they saw movies like Independence Day and just... and Day After Tomorrow, and we're like, we could do that with no effort whatsoever it's, and it's the same guy it, yeah I, I know it's the same guy i know it's the same guy uh he's like we could just do this again and it's it's fucking awful it is the it is the everything that people criticize roland emmerich for is in this movie tenfold uh this is this is what people who who hate roland emmerich see as all his movies and there's a good case to be made for that but this is just oh God, it, it's awful storytelling. The amount of just impossible coincidences that went in to getting John Cusack from this everyman guy who's trying to look out for his family onto a fucking ark in China were, was ridiculous. Like he had to just he had to meet the right guy who got him on a plane, and then the world had to shift thirty degrees or something, so they ended up right in China when they crashed, which wouldn't have been able to happen. Uh, and I like too how they didn't really specify. 2012 is this very was this very no one really knew what the apocalypse would be. So they're like fuck it, it's everything. I don't know. What do you want? Meteors? You want volcanoes? You want earthquakes? We got the we got the works here. And it just it was offensive. This is the first film on here that I would call offensive because it it drew attention to itself in a way that Survival of the Dead the happening and i frankenstein really didn't i feel like this was way more like 2012 see it and it it, it put it had the worst taste in my mouth from the beginning and i can't defend it on any level whatsoever because it didn't even have a good protagonist like uh you know i mean a, sorry a good lead actor like aaron eckhart it just had fucking john cusack like fuck you or mark Wahlberg. I hate this movie the, the plans to killing people oh no yeah <laughs> Right? They had, you know, Happening had Mark Wahlberg, I Frankenstein had uh, Aaron Eckhart, 2012 had fucking nobody I care to see ever. So. Jeez. Uh, wow. <laughs> We're getting in the really good part of your list. because I, I like your list because you get to get really passionately angry at something. I, uh, 
We'll, uh, we'll switch off. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, okay. So my number one is not any surprise to you because I told you what it was going to be before the show. Um, but there's no other choice it could be for me. I'm sorry. It's uh, Alfonso Cuarón's Children of Men, um, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the, the, the best post-apocalyptic film. One of... I can't decide between this or E2 Mama Tambien if it's Cuarón's best film, but it is... It has some of the best cinematography, some of the best sequences I've I've ever seen. It's it's so the, the premise is that um, in uh, it takes place in the year twenty twenty seven and uh, humanity's become infertile and uh, the youngest humans are I believe seventeen or eighteen years old um, and uh, the world's fallen into just complete degeneration and everyone uh, is basically trying to become an immigrant a british immigrant um and uh the, there's there's uh, the world's just an absolute ruin um theo the main character played by uh clive owen uh teams up with a, a group of freedom fighters essentially who uh have a young refugee named key which uh you know is probably my least favorite bit of subtle symbolism in the film um who is actually been able to miraculously conceive and uh who they need to get uh who basically need to uh get her to the this place called the human project for like the, the sake of survival of humanity um and the film is at that point is just all execution and it is just the most stunning filmmaking i've ever seen science fiction or otherwise um uh, Emmanuel Lubetsky was the director of photography here who works with Alfonso Cuarón in all of his films. Um, I, I Sequences will go on for like nine or eight, eight or nine minutes without a cut. Um, just amazing uh, coordination of so many elements in a scene, these chaotic battlegrounds. Uh, it, it's so immersive, and I honestly, it's one of those films where I don't know how they pulled off some of this uh, some of these techniques and the biggest tragedy to me about this film is that uh it was a commercial failure when it came out it didn't even make back its budget um let alone i didn't know that it, that it, is actually tragic yeah it made back it, it cost 76 million to make didn't even make 70 million back uh, just just oh. under 70 million and um you know that doesn't include the cost of you know advertising and whatnot uh this film should have been if, if we want to talk about uh groundbreaking action films this film should have been a zeitgeist picture and it was barely on everyone's radar and it's so tragic to me um again it's kind of difficult to describe because this film is so much about the execution and the filmmaking um Mm -hmm. but holy shit i I mean i hope this film is being more successful uh on home media than it was in the theater people need to see this movie um it's yeah, it's one of the great modern science fiction films. It's one of the great pieces of of filmmaking, really, that I've ever seen. Um, I think it's one of Emmanuel Lubetsky's, like, greatest achievements in terms of cinematography. Um, and, and goddamn, the world is so... Like, honestly, this is one of the few science fiction films where I, like... I could see, okay, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's how we're going to go. That's how the world's going to collapse in 10 or 15 years. Like... It's it's one of the few that actually seem believable. That's not about shoving new technology in my face to to make the future world seem like workaday. Uh, no, this is honest in every single aspect, and it does what science fiction is meant to do, which is comment on modern day trends and modern day problems. 
uh, with sort of this added storytelling apparatus of, of, you know, being set in the future and, and being able to sort of emphasize the things that you want to get across. It's, it's beautifully well done and most of it visually. You know, it's funny. Chiwetel Ejiofor yep, was, yep. He in, was, was in Children of Men. He, he was. was awesome. He was also in 2012. Oh my God, he was. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well, there's your through line. Yeah, there. Uh, and if if I I feel like I missed an opportunity by not putting 2012 at number one because that would have been a perfect segue. I, I don't uh, know how you could be more angry than you were with 2012. So I'm really excited. <laughs> I I feel like you, you know you should probably remember this one. Uh, I'm more angry that Kevin Costner made me sit oh, through no. the postman. He made me sit through the postman. I am more angry because we want to talk about a film that draws attention to this himself. This film is like, if I recall correctly, like two hours and a half, like two and a half hours, somewhere in that very too long neighborhood. It has no business being. So it asked more of me than 2012 did. Like 2012 is like, okay, sit through this shitty film, move on with your life. The postman is like, okay, you need to experience this movie. You need to experience Kevin Costner's vision. I feel like I don't even know if he directed this one. I feel like he was the auteur of this film, and I hate him it, for that. He directed it. He uh, he didn't write it, but he produced it and he starred in it. So yes, he, that's that's what I think. He's the Orson Welles of uh, of this picture. <laughs> yeah, and this was. I would say this is a, a bloated, like, two-and-a-half-hour vanity project in a way that a movie like, yeah, a vanity project in recent memory like Argo could never be that much so, if that made any well, sense Well, Argo whatsoever. was at least, Argo was at least this, like, superficial Hollywood uh, suspense film, uh, whereas I think you kind of nailed it when you said that The Postman was an experience. It's basically, actually, here's your connection. It's basically trying to go for something like what Children of Men did, except if it fails entirely, you then have to spend all your time completely drenched in a world that you just cannot stand to be in anymore. Yeah, no, I hate it. It's, it's you know, we're bringing back to Mad Max. Like, I loved experiencing Mad Max, the world that Mad Max lives in. I don't care at all about the the the... Kevin Costner, every man who finds a, 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 a bag of mail and then integrates himself into a society that he wasn't previously part of by uh, convincing them that he has letters from their loved ones and shit like that. It's like, this sort of human connection shit you're going for is trite and shallow and you're shoving in my face for two and a half hours. So yeah, I am more angry uh, than you at you than I am at Roland Emmerich and John Cusack. Uh, because that is the worst. That is some of the worst times I've had watching a film like this. Watching a film where I'm supposed to be all excited about how the how the world works now. After, you know, it, it's like a this weird. I get to sit in my cushy cushy couch and see what life could be like somewhere where it's awful. Uh, and I didn't get close to that experience. And fuck you, Kevin Costner. So okay. <laughs> the, <laughs> I wonder. It's my number one worst post-apocalyptic movie. Yeah, I, I, I think also acceptable would have been Waterworld. Um, what? That was really his. Uh, that was really his great one-two punch in the in the nineties, <laughs> wasn't it? No, I thought about putting that on my list, but as I said, I, wa- I kind of wanted to make my five all approach it from a different perspective. Sure, sure. So, and seeing in Waterworld is just another Kevin Costner piece of garbage. Uh, so I didn't want to throw that in there too. Like, have two segments where I'm just yelling at Kevin Costner. Um, 
maybe a little too much, so I went with just one, and I think I chose the right one as number one. Great. Uh, All right. And well, uh, we... yeah, that about wraps up our uh, conversation on the uh, best and worst post-apocalyptic films ever made, and uh, <laughs> and by extension, Mad Max. Um, I, I don't know. Do you think Fury Road could make your list of the best uh, post-apocalyptic films? I was honestly a little surprised it didn't make yours. Uh, um, I, I, no, I, I, I cannot possibly. First of all, no, I would okay. never even put a film at that at that reason on my list. I haven't had enough. That's what I was saying. That's what I was saying. I was surprised it didn't make yours, but I feel like this is a film that we need to digest for you know, let it sit a few more years, see how it stands in history, and then we can say, okay, this is one of the best post-apocalyptic films ever made, or one of the best action films ever made. I don't like making these sweeping statements when you know. This film is it's it's not even in diaper. It's barely in diapers. I think I, I think that's the I think that's some of the hyperbole that I've been. The only thing I've been reactionary against the film about is that kind of hyperbole because I I don't know I, I can't help but get the feeling that we need to let it sit for a little while and people are so ready to to call it a, a masterpiece for all time and I definitely do think it is a great film and something that I really hope uh, is sort of a. a kind of an action landmark you know you, you can mark a great action film every like five or six years um and i i, I think that that's this for our time but i i just would I, I hold off on putting it on like top five anything of all time for right now like calm down everyone calm down yeah yeah just i i agree with that breathe a little let's breathe a little on this movie let's not say it's not fantastic it's not at all oh, it's amazing. you should not see it you gotta go so. see it it's it's so good and i'm i'm honestly i really did want to do pitch perfect 2 a month ago and i'm i'm ashamed of myself now i i, <laughs> I can't believe how much that's backfired um, uh, I, I get to be well, right. Well, it could <laughs> a little bit more. Pitch Perfect Two was absolute garbage, which I, you know, to its defense, it wasn't. Um, no, yeah, it's it would have been a much. Yeah, there's not nearly as much to talk about there. Um, Man, I really, I, we should really review After Earth instead of Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> um, that would be fun, but uh, I don't know. The internet's kind of had its internet's kind of chewed up and spit and, and spat out After Earth. Yeah, I know. We don't need to talk Same about Same with that The anymore. Happening, but uh, man, uh, watch The Happening as a comedy because it's, uh, it's quite fun. It's, it's awesome, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, well, that was our show. We're get, we are going to review Tomorrowland um, coming up this weekend. Or, well, I guess we're going to be recording early next week and then post it. So it'll be a little bit, but you'll get it. So, yeah. Um, that was our show. It was a great show this week. It's going to be a great show next week. And as always, thank you for listening.